This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. At the start of the legislative session, the state had to come to grips with several concerning reports showing declines in math and reading scores for public school students. That by third and the third grade, that if children are not proficient in literacy, that's going to be a big problem for them. That studies seem to show that uh, they don't progress as well. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. A CSX train derailed in the New River Gorge early Wednesday. As Curtis Tate reports, there were no hazardous materials on board, but the train crew was injured. The 109-car CSX empty coal train struck a rock slide and derailed Wednesday morning, injuring three crew members, the railroad said. The West Virginia Emergency Management Division said one of the train's locomotives went into the New River and caught fire. CSX said an unknown amount of diesel fuel spilled. The Department of Health and Human Resources and West Virginia American Water are monitoring water quality. No drinking water intakes have been shut off. The derailment occurred as rail safety is under heightened scrutiny from federal regulators and Congress. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating three recent incidents on Norfolk Southern and Ohio, including derailments in East Palestine and Springfield and the death of a train conductor in Cleveland. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw is scheduled to testify in a U.S. Senate hearing on Thursday. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The federal government says this year's count of homeless people shows 40% are living on the streets unsheltered. That's the highest percentage ever. Many cities are struggling to provide support. In Charleston, West Virginia, outdoor encampments have been a focus at the state legislature as debate continues over how to respond. In our latest episode of Us and Them, host Trey Kay talks with the Director of Policy for the National Health Care for Homeless Council. Barbara DePietro says our current approach to homelessness only worsens underlying issues. Here's an excerpt for, from our next podcast. The cost of housing continues to rise across the country. And sustainable policies for housing homeless people are in dispute. It's no surprise that more people are living on the streets. And that's obviously very concerning. So what are we doing as communities, though? We're sending in the police. Break up that encampment. You can't be there. This is public space. You've taken over this park. Back in 2016, Charleston's then mayor, Danny Jones, held a press conference announcing his decision to clear out a homeless encampment. At 2 o'clock, our personnel, uniformed, uh, and our public works department and all sorts of social service agencies are descending on Tent City to dismantle it. The so-called Tent City was an encampment on private property with an estimated 20 to 30 residents. These are folks that don't want to obey any rules, and they also want to drink. And they want to drink, uh, they want the ability to drink around the clock. And we, uh, that's their business. They just can't do it there. And there's been all Cities across the country use a range of strategies to empty homeless encampments. But DePetra argues clearing them out is counterproductive and expensive. In forcibly removing folks and throwing away all of their stuff, 
how have we actually solved anything and only just recreated the same problem? Only now our guy doesn't have a tent, doesn't have a blanket, doesn't have anything to his name, doesn't even have an ID because you throw it away. There's millions of dollars that go into replacing those IDs, replacing the, that medication that municipal authorities threw away. In fact, just a year after Charleston's tent city was cleared, the city settled a lawsuit that included $20,000 for reimbursement of personal items lost in the raid. And you're just forcing your guy to go somewhere else. So now maybe behind the Walmart or maybe further out in the woods. But nowhere did we provide any solution to the problem at hand. And that's that these folks have nowhere to go. DePietro says there are successful supportive programs that combine affordable housing with social services. These can include a nurse, therapist, social worker, and psychiatrist to help monitor health conditions and medications. And she says those examples are not a new model. How do we support seniors in this country? For years and years, we were talking about home and community-based services, keeping grandmom out of the nursing home by putting a ramp at her house, putting grab bars in, maybe put some things into the bathroom and the kitchen to help our elderly people stay in their houses longer and be safe. And I think that if we adopt the same approach, and, and we are in many communities, just not at the scale that we need to be doing, um, that's a winning model, also one that has a lot of evidence base behind it as not just cost effective for, for public expenditures, but also yields better outcomes for the people that you're serving. But it's, it's happening at a fraction of the rate that it needs to happen. And the result is an expensive cycle of mental health and medical care, and in some cases, incarceration. If you believe that human beings deserve housing, if you believe that human beings deserve health care, how is it that we don't mirror our public policies to honor that? So when we think about people living on the street who have significant health conditions, where is the humanity in ignoring that? Where is the humanity in letting him die when, if you put him in a house and give him a case manager and a nurse, he can thrive? That's an excerpt from our latest Us and Them episode called Compassion Fatigue. You can download the entire show from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, or Spotify. You can also listen online at wvpublic.org. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 750. Becoming mostly sunny today, highs in the 50s. Chance of rain tonight, snow possible in the mountains with lows in the 30s and 40s. Chance of rain tomorrow with a wintry mix possible in the eastern mountains and eastern panhandle, highs in the 40s and 50s. Support for WVPB is provided by Extreme Networks, providing customer-driven networks with a diverse range of solutions and local support in West Virginia. Online at ExtremeNetworks.com.
At the start of the legislative session, the state had to come to grips with several concerning reports showing declines in math and reading scores for public school students. Now, at the end of the legislative session, reporter Chris Schultz looks into what has been done so far to improve student outcomes. He spoke with Delegate Joe Ellington, a Republican from Mercer County, and the chairman of the House Education Committee. Uh, what were your uh, main objectives for this session? Well, we have a number of objectives. Obviously, we're looking at kindergarten through 12th grade for public school, private and um, we have also the charters, too. Um, we're also looking at higher education, and then we're also looking at adult education, too. So all of those components and all the things that, that affect that, we'll look at the environments for the students, what uh, goals we have set for them that we'd like to achieve, the work environment for the people that work there and help out, our teachers, our supportive staff, uh, each of the facilities, things like that. So all of those things we have to look at as far as uh, each year, what things can we do to help improve their lives? And then, of course, obviously funding is a major concern, and it's a finite thing, but we try to do what we can to, to help with moving things along. So, Delegate, um, you know, you mentioned we try and do the same thing each year, try and improve, but this year was kind of unique because it started out with not one, not two, but several studies showing very starkly where our students are at coming out of COVID-19. So I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, how has the legislature reacted to the NAEP test scores, for example, the state um, assessment scores, and, and what still needs to be done with regards to that? A lot has to be done, at least from our part, and uh, we, we were not too pleased with where the results were. Uh, no, there have been a number of factors that enter into that, especially after the COVID pandemic uh, did not help us at that, that point. I will say for the past couple years, um, from house education, we've been working on how to improve those scores and from kindergarten through third grade. So we had worked on that last year, had a bill that went over to the Senate uh, where we tried to have intensive training for kids that might have been below proficiency uh, during those times. And then also the teacher aid uh, bill. Um, both of those, uh, the aid bill didn't make it through the House Finance. The, um, the K-3 bill that we had did go to over to the Senate, but uh, didn't make it through Senate finance. So over the summer, we worked together to combine both of those. Uh, our intent was that by third, end of third grade, that if children are not proficient in literacy, that's going to be a big problem for them. That Studies seem to show that uh, they don't progress as well, uh, and it just gets worse as the years go on. Uh, we did model uh, legislation after Florida and Mississippi, um, that had success in those areas. So when we combined that, we had House Bill 2003, which was one of our caucus bills that we wanted to move. Um, the Senate also had a similar bill, Senate Bill 274, that they were working on, similar findings and plans. Um, the governor also had one, too. Uh, which well, as was you said, this is House this is Bill 3035. So yes, all bodies were, were interested in this and try to prove that. So we had similar bills and all of them had uh, very good things in them. Some things that we have dis discrepancies about or ways we might be able to do better. But the general goal was to help target that with the intent that we put more intensive uh, effort into our kindergarten through third grade, also helping the teachers and the staff uh, because of the support. Because when you get class sizes above a certain limit, especially if you have other individuals in there that might be 
slowing down progress or taking away the progress for other children. We wanted to try to at least look at how can we improve that, and that's where the AIDS part came in. And of course, there's a manpower issue with that and also funding issues, so those were hurdles we were trying to get through. But I think after those test scores came back, the governor was probably on board with it. I can't speak for him, uh, but I know the House and Senate was, and uh, the funding part was then going to materialize a little better at that point. And with us having a, uh, a surplus this year, uh, that was uh, one of the priorities to, to prioritize where the funding might have gone to. Uh, other areas that we were looking at, though, we have um, bills that I had put in. We had a teacher raise bill, service personnel. Uh, those were House Bills 2828 and 2598. What we were trying to achieve with that uh, was to get to the 50th percentile of our neighboring states. So that, that would take away, one, that argument about you're not paying us enough, but by the same token say, yes, we want to reward you for what you're doing and at least get us on par with our neighboring states. We'd love to give them more, but we felt that would be at least one area. Those didn't make it through finance, but they did make it through the House Education Committee. So that's a start, and obviously it's a process, so this may take some more time to do that in the future. Of course, the governor had his state employee pay raise, not quite to the level that we were trying to get to, but at least that some help there. Uh, other areas we're looking at was how do we help our teachers. Uh, there was, we did a, a, a survey last year where we found out from the Chapter 18 part, part of the code what things could we do to make their lives a little better. Uh, not a lot of significant stuff that we were able to do, but we did have legislation uh, for increasing their personal leave days uh, that they could take in, in sequence, uh, trying to preserve their duty-free lunch and uh, planning periods. We also looked at uh, their requirements for having to do the IEPs because the teachers are usually ones that were stuck with doing that. So we wanted to take some of that burden off of them. So those are bills that came out of our, uh, our talks with them over last year. That was Delegate Joe Ellington speaking with Chris Schultz about education legislation for the legislature today. To hear the rest of that interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Tune in every evening, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. on radio and television to get updates on the legislative session. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day at our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, Randy Yoey, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.